I was at the Lincoln Center screening 50 years ago, and I recall it as looking pretty darn good. Uh, examining the print now, I do see a lot of real damage at, at the ends with missing frames. Were they there 50 years ago? I don't know. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. How a classic horror film went from lost to restored on Blu-ray, and it only took 50 years. We talk with UCLA's Scott McQueen about restoring the two-strip Technicolor chiller Mystery of the Wax Museum. And Jim Nybar's new book looks at a much maligned director, William Bodine, and says it's time to give him the credits he's due. But first, make sure you never miss an episode of Nitrateville Radio by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, give us credit by leaving a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. Almost as beautiful as the original. Someday I hope to have you restore Marie Antoinette. You will always be beautiful. Think, my child. In a thousand years, you will be as lovely as you are now. Come. No, no. Come. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Mystery of the Wax Museum. Directed by Michael Cortez and starring Lionel Atwill as a mad sculptor and Faye Ray as the young lady who he thinks would make a perfect Marie Antoinette, permanently, will be released on Blu-ray by Warner Archive on May 12th. That release will represent the culmination of a 50-year journey that took the two-strip Technicolor horror film from Lost to Rediscovered to Released on Video to finally a restoration that captures the full information and range of its production in the short-lived red and green color process. It's also been a nearly 50-year-old journey on this particular film for Scott McQueen, who first read about it as a kid in Monster Magazines. McQueen, head of preservation for the UCLA Film and Television Archive, led the effort to restore the film with the Film Foundation and funding from the George Lucas Family Foundation. I spoke with McQueen at his home in California about how Warner Brothers, a studio not known for horror, came to make a horror film in two-strip Technicolor, a look not known for horror either. Warner was one of the first big adopters of two-color. Just as they had, you know, broken through with sound, I think Jack figured that color was going to be the next big thing and they wanted to be there. So they did a series of contracts that eventually gave them, like, 40 features and um, I'm forgetting how many short subjects. And in 1929-30 was the big heyday 
uh, uh, Desert Song and Golden Dawn and you know, Under a Texas Moon, of course, Viennese Nights. They did 40 features. And by 32, the, the color wave had kind of ended. Um, they'd had trouble with at Technicolor servicing the contracts because the two-color dye transfer starting in 28 was very much a prototype. They had one little pilot plant to produce them. And when these contracts brought in a wave of work, they had to run quickly and set up a production line, and which meant training people almost overnight, running three shifts a day, and just getting product out the door because they couldn't miss the play dates. They'd made the commitments now. And as a result, the quality control got terrible. You see a lot of dye transfer like Sally or, uh, um, God, what's another one that's particularly bad? I, I can recall that the New York Times or one of the trades of review Desert Song and said that the skies were raining sand because <laughs> the pieces were so grainy. And uh, color balance and grain were the two big things they were fighting. Um, so it, it really kind of cut its own throat that way. People knew, began to know it as kind of a dreary negative experience. Um of course, King of Jazz and Whoopi were the two biggest expensive million-dollar-plus musicals done that way. But by 32, the bloom was kind of off the rose. Nobody else was renewing contracts, and Warner still had to play out two final features on their contract, which they were obliged to do. I think they picked Dr. X because even though Jack Warner seems to have despised horror films, they did see there was money in them, and they were into a money-making business. Thirty-two had been this, you know, thirty-one, thirty-two had been the season of Dracula, Frankenstein. Um, the Mummy came later. Uh, that actually followed Doctor X, but Murders in the Room War. The initial horror pictures cleaned up, so they rebranded one under their own house style and did Doctor X from a stage play, but put it in the in the guise of a newspaper picture, which is what they were very strong at doing were these torn from the headlines uh, kind of front page tales. And Dr. X became primarily that. The horror aspect was downplayed in all the advertising. And it's odd that, to my opinion, that uh, when they do go to their horror scenes, the horror scenes in Dr. X are about the most gruesome done at that time. Uh, they may be rivaled only by the Isle of, Island of Lost Souls surgical scenes that are so horrible. But um, Dr. X was was uh, shown in July and got tremendous reviews and began getting great production value. But they'd already been cautious at Warner and decided to film Dr. X on the, on the sly in black and white, which was expressly forbidden by their contract. But this way, Warner could use up the contract and then make a limited number of prints and put most of their prints out from the black and white negative, which they print on their own lab. And of course, how do you think you're going to keep that? Do you think Ray Renahan and the cameraman aren't going to report back that you know they got another camera unit on the set? So um, Calmus was really annoyed. He wrote to Warner and said, you know, he, he took the tack that it's costing you time and money in production to stage it twice, and don't blame us. It's more expensive for you to make which was his way of being gracious because his next line was, 
but we we will not allow this on the final picture of the contract. And uh, so that was his way of saying, you're not going to get away with it again. So Wax Museum shot only in Technicolor, and they chose Wax Museum because as a horror picture, X had done very well, and they reunited the director, the main stars, many of the same sets, the color process, the technical crew, and pretty much repeated the uh, the formula. A newspaper uh, reporter is, is the uh, the principal, solves the crime, uh, and then you have this weird backstory of the the burned museum and the uh, Phantom of the Opera like scarred face. And Wax Museum again did very very well. It ended the contract, but you'll notice that Warner Brothers did not go back to making more horror films after that. They might do um, horror-themed films that were more mysteries, like The Return of the Terror, which was a follow-up to their first full-talking feature, The Terror from 1928, actually conceived as one. The Lights of New York had started as a short. Right. But um, uh, later things that they would do, The Florentine Dagger, which Robert Flory did in 1935, it's a melodrama, but it's got a, a climax lifted from Wax Museum where the killer has been hiding uh, his face. I don't want any spoilers in here. Uh, behind, a, behind a rubber mask for many, many years, horribly burned in a theater fire. Um, so that's obviously a lift from the concept of Wax Museum. But again, it's not played for horror. You never see the face beneath the mask in that film. The... Uh, the uh, the killer confesses with the mask on, and it's a, it's a very sympathetic character, so there's no reason for them to embarrass the character by making the character reveal uh, the wound. Um, then, you know, later Warner Brothers horror films, if you want to call them that, devolve into things like, you know, The Octopus, which right. is really a, a mystery comedy. And then when the, 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 uh, the horror film has new life in 38 with Son of Frankenstein. Warner looks at getting into it again. They're talking to Technicolor again about using the new three-color process, which they are the first studio to really embrace with Robin Hood and, and such. So everybody's playing with it. Uh, you know, Paramount goes after Trail of the Lonesome Pirate. Warner makes a big commitment to it. And one of the first things they think about doing is the return of Dr. X. But they don't think of it as a Lionel Atwell follow up with this Dr. Xavier having new adventures or reprising the joys of synthetic flesh. It's set back at the turn of the century in the gaslight era, but they saw it as a Karloff and Lugosi vehicle and developed it along those lines. But I suspect uh, Warner did not want a traditional horror film. And so it again became a newspaper reporter story. And rather than synthetic flesh, you had synthetic blood. And you didn't have Technicolor, you had a B picture. Yeah. Uh, you know, 68 minute black and white with Wayne Morris. And even that went through all kinds of uh, back and forth and reshooting to uh, arrive at the final film. So Warner really was not uh, enamored of the genre. And even when it made money, it wasn't of interest to them. They, they followed their own muse, as it were, and, and went different directions. All right. So uh, I, I read that you have an interesting personal connection to it going back to childhood. Tell oh, me about God. that. Well, you know, so many of us 
I, I don't know how old you are, Mike, but uh, in, in the mid-60s when I was coming of age, you had like two standard books at the library. You had Joe Franklin's Classics of the Silent Screen and Griffith's The Movies. That's really all you could find out about old movies. Living outside of New York City, I had access to great uh, numbers of TV stations running old films. So you had all the old Paramounts and you had all the old Warner titles and radio RKO titles running all the time. And the Universal Horrors, which uh, caught me early on. Like all boomers of that generation, we had to buy our first copies of Famous Monsters. I think I got mine in third grade. Um, it was the Flesh Eaters cover. And damn, the Flesh Eaters never came to a theater in Montana. <laughs> we had one theater, and we had a lot of AIP stuff, but we never got the Flesh Eaters. But as you'd read through that, you'd learn about things like a movie called Mystery of the Wax Museum. And I'd already had seen The House of Wax on New York TV in 1963 when it debuted on The Late Show. So I knew the story and really got off on it. You know, it was a... As, as I mentioned in my commentary on the disc, there's something about the tale that is very attractive to children. You know, and I won't bore your time now by going into in my armchair psychology about the various aspects of that. You know, the, the missing mother and the, uh, the uh, need to stay in place or return to an earlier time. The children sense in that. But um, we all thought it was really cool, particularly, you know, the, the, the broken face thing was new to us. I mean, what were you? You you were nine or ten years old and there was no overdone precedent for that. And then you'd read about Mystery of the Wax Museum, and if you were lucky see a picture or two from it, and you found out that the chick from King Kong was in it, and that it was an early color. Geez, you never saw 1930s movies in color, but then again, wait a minute, we didn't even have color TV in 1965. Right. <laughs> but um uh, then you were told that you couldn't see it, that it, it was a lost movie, whatever that meant. It, you'd never get to see it. So it kind of just kind of stuck in my head as an interesting thing. And uh, in the afternoons after school, I had a paper route on my little country road. And one of my uh, subscribers was uh, Dr. Ross, a, a retired Army doctor, and his wife, Mrs. Ross. And I remember my parents and their friends saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's the movie star that lives up the road. Glenda Farrell, and I didn't know who Glenda Farrell was. I, they didn't play a lot of her pictures in rotation, you know, on TV at the time. But then around 1969, as I started to really follow my interest in old films, and I was actually going into the library and looking up New York Times microfilm reviews of the period and reading about movies and, and all, I noticed in the review of that that Glenda Farrell was third build. I thought, wow, that's really neat. So I picked up the phone on a December morning, and I cold called her on a Saturday morning and asked her, Hi, Miss Farrell. My voice hadn't even cracked yet. <laughs> or I think I called her Mrs. Ross. I asked if I could talk to her about it. And she was busy wrapping Christmas presents, but she said, Oh, I'll give you a little time. So I ran and got my portal little three-inch tape recorder and stuck it on the ancillary phone. And we just did an impromptu interview about a movie I had never seen. Huh. And... Um, she gave me Frank McHugh's address, and as much as telling me that, that he lived in Coscob, Connecticut. So I wrote to him in Coscob and got a nice letter back. And then in the, uh, the summer of the following year, uh, the Jack Warner film was announced as found, the nitrate print of Wax Museum. And I bought tickets in September or August when they advertised for tickets for the New York Film Festival screening. 
and invited her and the doctor to go with me. But uh, she turned me down very nicely. I suspect she'd already left the cast of 40 carats that she had terminal breast cancer. And I uh-huh. just think, she, you know, did not want to go out in public at that point. She didn't, she didn't die for a time, but I think she already knew she was ill. So uh, anyway, that was my first connection about it. And, uh, um, so it was neat to see the movie, even without her at my side, and, and uh, see what it was all about after all that time. So yeah, so they found a print in 1969 that in Jack Warner's, I don't know, sock drawer. Where where well, was it? There was, a, there was a vault at the studio that they called Jack Warner's vault, and it's where he had a lot of his personal films were in there. Uh, one of the Rin Tins he produced, a serial he had produced, uh, odd things. Um, and in there were things like this unique print of wax museum and the Dr. X color print. Uh, I think the divine woman may have been there, but these, these were things that were for whatever reason, uh, put aside because of their age and his interest in them. And, um, you know, there are people today that, that are still moaning and saying, Oh, there's no such thing as a Jack Warner vault. Well, there was just like a Disney uh, we had a Disney, what we call a Walt vault. And it was a vault where Walt had just kind of put things that were of interest to him. It had uh, home movies of, of he and his brother. Uh, it had early silent tests he'd done. There were color tests of Pinocchio, uh, where the blue fairy had blue hair. So um, these were things that obviously Disney had kept. There was a, a Christmas greeting from David Tomlinson on film. <laughs> Happy Christmas. So, you know, these were all there and uh, I copied the most important of them. And uh, yet, you know, they weren't easily accessible to everyone. And when these films went to TV in the 50s, 1956 uh, Associated Artists picked up the Warner Brothers titles for TV distribution. The title was on the sales list, but there was no preprint in either the East or West Coast vaults. And when you go to look for a film to distribute, you go look for the camera negative or a fine grain or any kind of master preprint. Um, obviously, no one was, could point them to a one-of-a-kind studio reference print that was in Jack's private vault. Um, so it did not make it to television. Dr. X only made it to TV because there was a black and white negative. So that was why that went to TV, uh, but in the alternate version, not the color. Um, the irony of that is after it was found and the announcement was made in a variety, the writer Ray Russell was developing a TV series on House of Wax for Warner. And he screened a picture and he was aware of the early Wax Museum film. And he asked if he could look at that as well. And uh, the, his contacts were, they knew nothing about it. The people he dealt with in uh, production or post-production had never even heard of the movie. But I guess a call went to the vaults and somebody in the vault knew about the water vault. And he said he screened a print that afternoon. (laughs) And obviously he screened that same one of a kind print. So to him, it was never lost because he was able to screen it. Right. Uh, Andrew DeToth told uh, Tom Weaver that he'd screened it before making House of Wax in 52. So the print was known even that early. And um, there was at least one other reel in Hollywood because Rudy Belmer screened the Technicolor reference reel at Technicolor in the early 60s. It was the reel 1A, the, the fire. 
which no longer exists today in the Technicolor collection. But so there were these odd sightings of it before that period, but the, where it was residing, it was not obvious. So what condition was it in when it was found? Relatively good. Uh, I've got, I was at the Lincoln Center screening 50 years ago, and I recall it as looking pretty darn good. Uh, examining the print now, I do see a lot of real damage at, at the ends with missing frames. Uh, were they there 50 years ago? I don't know. That nitrate print, since it, since it was found, had been sent out many times for screenings. I know they sent it to England to screen. It played at Grauman's. It's, it's played any number of occasions, and each time it could have incurred damage. Um, but I don't know that for a fact. There are some long sections of, uh, of uh, speckling and raking in the print. The entire sequence where Lionel Atwill rises in the morgue to look for the Joan of Arc body um, has uh, this flecking, this, this emulsion damage all through it. And that's even in the old dupe negative that was made. So that was been there since the film was found. Uh, but not being able to access easily the 1971 dupe negatives, uh, I can't be certain what was and wasn't there. But today when I look at it, you know, it's full of rakes and scratches and uh, multiple manual changeover cues and slashes. I don't know if you were able to look at the before and after clips. Yes. Yeah, so that'll give, that'll give you a pretty good idea of the worst of the physical damage. And with that as well, you know, you've got the kind of minor damage that before the current age we never thought of. Uh, dirt in the original negative, you know, minor scratches, things that we didn't pay attention to in a pre-digital age. Now everybody wants every piece of fly poop taken out of every frame of every film. But, you know, when I think how we put up with them in previous days and how with a film like this, we were just glad to see it. But you can, you can see there are matrix defects. There's dirt in, in the uh, matrix path, which shows as green or red, which would be either minus green or minus red in the printing matrix, letting the light print through. There's, there's essentially a, a photographic hole there. And um, so, uh, yeah, relatively it's pretty good. There were even some shots mid-reel that had splices and were missing words. So we had to get creative about fixing those up for the first time. Yeah, I saw you said that you took a a bit of dialogue from a different Glenda Farrell movie to patch a hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, there were a couple of... Uh, we, well, this leads to another, another point, was that a second print of Wax Museum turned up in the, in the mid-2000s. Uh, it's a French dubbing work print of some sort. It was here in Los Angeles with a collector, um, it's got the title Masque de Seal, which is the French title for it, that's physically spliced on to the print. And some reels where they have sound, they're all English sound. And some reels are black track, not printed with sound. And most of the reels have French subtitles uh, printed in by the technique that Technicolor used in those days. Uh, it's in physically fairly good condition, minor scratches. It's clearly made from different matrices than the Jack Warner print because those were made optically, and you can see some differences in the geometry. So we know it's a different printer pass. And the actual color saturation is, and, and timing is very different from the Warner print. 
It's paler, more washed out, a bit more toward the green cyan spectrum, and uh, not as contrasty. Um, we used it only where we needed it. So at the end of the of Real 1A, where there's a shot of the figures burning, a wide shot, there were nine seconds of additional footage of the statues burning in the French print. So we borrowed the entire shot from there. Um, the, um, the line of Glenda's happens mid-reel, and it's when she's um, uh, having one of her banter sessions with Frank McHugh, and he's talking over her. And uh, in the version we've always seen, she glares at him, and in a very oddly delivered line, she says, I asked you to keep shut, which is an odd way of phrasing it. So we dropped in. We could see the splice. We compared it with the French. We saw that the French was what, 38 frames or something longer, we put it in position, and we could lip read. And she was saying, I asked you to keep your trap shut, which is typical 30 slang. Well, there was nothing in the dialogue that came close to that. And so I gave myself the task of going through, I think, a dozen Glenda Farrell <laughs> features, listening for sounds that might work, parts of words, anything. And then in... Uh, Life Begins, where she's the drunk in the maternity ward, bickering with all the other uh, expected mothers. She turns over in bed and yells at someone, I asked you to keep your trap shut. Wow. Oh, oh my God, you know, just given to you. So uh, the, it's, it's a little sporadic and it's a little bit faster, but where you're able to make the line work beautifully. Yeah. And uh, the other full line we had to take from the French print, fortunately, was from one of the sounded reels. And that was at the head of 4B, where Lionel is rising from his chair. And in the versions we've always known, Faye says to him, here, let me help you. And then you cut to Lionel rising, saying, help me, my dear, to give back to the world my Marie Antoinette. And what we have in the, in the undamaged print is, but you've already helped me, my dear. Help me to give back to the world. So we got the full line back from that source. And then elsewhere, we had to pull in a couple of words from Alan Vincent, and uh, which we were able to take out of the movie. We had to go to, to another movie to get a couple of words for Edwin Maxwell that we didn't have, and then feather them in. So that was good. The sound also is uh, is as good as you've ever heard it, and probably better than audiences heard it in 33, when you figure that the Average theater did not have a top-end delivery of more than 8,000 cycles. That's the most that the Voice of America horns could deliver in a theater. And so we've denoised it to uh, bring down the optical hiss. Um, and we've, in cleaning it, we've been able to uncover sound that the recordings previously had, had muddled. So that when the morgue monster is looking for the Joan of Arc corpse in the morgue, you can hear him panting and breathing heavily as he's looking body to body. It's very, very creepy. I was told by people that were at the MoMA screening of our restoration last December that the scene where Arthur Carew is winding the, um, the hand organ on the exhibit and there's a wiry sound as it springs that it was so, it had been so quiet and it was so intense, it made people jump. <laughs> And uh, that's good, because that obviously was the intent. And you can now hear things you never heard before, like uh, 
when Glenda's watching, she's sneaking around the museum watching the exhibits being installed, and she sees Matthew Betts slide a knife into the naked chest of the Marat statue. And now you can hear a slight as it uh. slides in, which is a lot creepier than just hearing optical hash. So that was fun. And, and overall, it's got a general, a much better general ambience. Wax has a good track because most of it is not a mixed track. They only mix the soundtrack where they had to lay in a sound effect, like the thunder in the, uh, the storm in real one. But much of it are cut takes, so they didn't go through a mix board. And that gives a much more clean and, and faithful presence than something that went through a 1930s mixer. Let's talk about the color in particular. I saw, you know, this is now 30 years ago myself, um, it was some sort of retrospective at the School of the Art Institute here of color restorations. And one of them was uh, a screening of both Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum. And I would describe that color as kind of being the aqua and peach school of two-strip technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just looking at the, the clips, like you mentioned, the, the restoration clips, you see how, I mean, it's, it's maybe kind of in that ballpark, but it's much more rounded into other kinds of color, uh, than, than those were. And I think the, you know, somewhere I have the laser disc, not that I've looked at it for a million years either, but I think it was also in that kind of peach and aqua range. So what, where's the color now? The color is primarily faithful to the nitrate print, but I hate to use the word improved, but it's it's a wider range color than that print reveals in projection. Um, the dyes for Technicolor are fairly dense, and your black shadows tend to have a bias either toward green or a magenta orange-red. Uh, you know, you, you don't... They did not use a key image. They used the black and white for the soundtrack, black and white silver for a soundtrack, and the frame lines surround. But they did not print the high-resolution key for a, a pure black. So you only, the only black you got was, a, was, a, was made from the primaries. And based on how the matrices were made and how they were inked and printed, the range for these Technicolor subjects in that period are all over the place. Wax Museum, you've got test frames in the tech collection at Eastman House. Library of Congress, I believe, where the Academy has some others. Um, and they look very, very different from anything we see on it. Um, many of them are very yellow, very warm gold yellow, which makes no sense. Yellow is a color that that process couldn't reproduce. Um, so if we start with original nitrate elements, you've got those yellow frames that mean nothing to how the prints look. You've got the fairly rich look of the Jack Warner print, which itself is cannibalized. It's several prints put together because there are non-matching reels and then there are pickups at reel ends where the color changes because they've gone to a less damaged copy to put together one good copy. This probably done you know, back in the 40s or whatever at the studio uh, or the exchange to make a print you know, serviceable. Um, and, we, and we know the color prints were enjoyed and they got wide circulation on some of the farthest flung runs of it in 35 uh, in Detroit or someplace, uh, small exhibitors writing to the trades, how uh, they ran it and how the audience liked it. But he said, 
A boy was a chore to run. We could barely get it through the projectors. We were told it was the last print they had in the exchange in Detroit. So they kept those prints going on their last legs. And of course, by 35, you could not reprint them uh, because Technicolor was swapping over to the three-color process, which they did by modifying the two-color printing rigs and changing all their filter uh, pathways and such. So you really could not print authentic two-color after 1936. But um, the French print that, that we uh, we had, which is at the Packard Humanities Institute, that, as I mentioned before, it's much paler and much greener. It doesn't really resemble the, uh, the Jack Warner print. So when you look at it, and then what is the color temperature you're looking at it on? Uh, the old carbon arc lamps probably were around 5,600 degrees Kelvin. Um, it was a much brighter and warmer light than we're seeing now. And what about varnishing? Because Technicolor did varnish prints to keep them from scratching as easily. And in the two-color period, we know that was done with a yellow varnish. Um, and uh, so without examining some of these little off-clip samples in hand and doing an analysis of them, I'm going to step out on a limb and say, are they varnished? Perhaps they are. Is that why they're plus yellow? Because you know, they would have to make a certain throw in a certain theater, just like how drive-ins used to have prints made a certain way for density and balance because of the extremely long throws they had. Technicolor was very concerned about how their prints would play in projection. Um, you know, when you see them today, especially in an Eastman color copy, you know, what's the color temperature of the uh, theater you're looking at? In? Are they using xenon? Is it a colder light? So all these things have influence on the color. But in the scans from it, I can see that there is much more in the print as there would be in the negative that resembles what was in front of camera. The best way to analyze a color system are by the neutrals. How well does it reproduce white, black, and gray? And of course, we know the whites were a problem in Technicolor. It couldn't handle them, so they used A-Crew. We know that the blacks in reproduction had to depend on a combination of a red-orange and a blue-green combination, plus density to achieve them. If you get too dense, you start losing shadow detail. So our 4K scans that were done on these, we were able to see a lot more in the shadows than you can see in the conventional prints. Now with that, you're opening up the blacks a bit, but you, uh, you have to be careful how you balance that. You want just enough black to carry the sense of the scene. If it's a dark night scene or if it's a moody scene, but there is a lot to be said for being able to read the shadows and see the detail that's there. Uh, I can't recall ever seeing the color of the actor's eyes in Wax Museum. And now you can see who has green eyes, who has hazel eyes. One of the, um, one of the most outstanding color moments for me is Faye's velvet or dress that she wears at the opening of the museum. They clearly had something resembling a pearl gray in front of the camera. But being gray, it always picked up a little coloration either toward a brownish or toward a, uh, an olive green, neither of which is correct. When you balance that toward a pearl gray, the flesh tones fall right into line. And that's the other big arbiter for, for color is how do the faces look? And um, we've gotten 
excellent face rendition without a lot of the false coloration or the yellow of those clips. We were able to get like that, that green dress and then we see more intermediate shades of beige and brown and olive green and emerald green. The, the hues of the various primary colors are much deeper. They, they, we see more variations of color than you see in most of the copies. So using the nitrate as the basis, we want to see as much color with as much um, lack of contamination as we could and making sure we never strayed toward the colors it couldn't reproduce, pure yellows, blue, violet, you know, things that just don't belong in that spectrum of the red, orange, blue, green. In the leaders of the reels, Technicolor actually had registration printing marks, a big RNG, which printed in full color from each record. And they then overlapped in the leader when they were printed to the matrices. So you can use those as a balance mark and a color chart to start with those, render those to match the red, orange, and the cyan green. And I say cyan green because it's, it's more toward a cyan color than it is toward primary green. That's what allowed them to get more variation by giving it that bluish drift. And when you get that right, then the rest of it starts to fall into place as well. So there's certain aesthetics, there are certain judgments to be had. And, uh, you know, right or wrong, I'll, I'll take blame for those judgments. And it's based on a half century interest in and seeing Technicolor in the two color format. It's always fascinated me. Do you think it, it looks better than any print did back then now? That's how I feel about it, um, because I think you're seeing a wider range of color than you saw in 33. I don't know how else to express it. I, the, the, there were limitations as there are to any mechanical process. And the nature of the dyes and getting density and holding down grain, I think that you just did not see those subtleties then. You'd see even more of them if you had the camera negative today. I think King of Jazz is an example of that, where I think uh, maybe two-thirds of it is from camera negative from the 33 reissue. And you're seeing levels of detail. Um, I mean, I don't know that I agree with the color rendering of that completely. Um, having seen, you know, nitrate on it and seen what the, the nitrate uh, balance looked like, uh, it was warmer. Much of it tended to be warmer. I suspect the varnish may be a part of it, but they couldn't reproduce blue. And they very much on the new rendition wanted the Rhapsody in blue to look blue. You see original frames of that and it's more of, green with a lean to a turquoise. Uh, I like how John Baxter once reviewed it in, in one of his books and said that Rhapsody in Blue features uh, uh, 15 shades of turquoise, all of them nasty. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's funny because even Gershwin said that he wasn't trying to create a sense of the color blue. He was addressing the mood. I got the blues. You know, uh, the idea of it having a color value you know, like like a Bliss's Color Symphony or something, just isn't there. But that's the expectation, and clearly, clearly, the you know the folk at Universal would have made it blue if they could have. They were heading that direction with Technicolor as close as they could. Yeah, no, because I've seen like you know I saw David Pierce's Technicolor show, and he show I don't remember what the musical is, but where it has a yellow taxi, and you see the you know there's the yellow varnish doing its job because 
<clears throat> there's no way there would have been a yellow taxi otherwise. Yeah. Um, well, I, think, I don't know if it's doing its job if that was intended, uh, or they just imparted that. A, a, a very good example of, of how that coloration affects things is the um, mass ball from the Cheney Phantom, which until recently we've only had in that dye transfer print from 1930. And I remember when it was first found and, and made available to collectors, when you had screened it, it had a, you know, a, Raoul's robe looked almost purple. Uh, Mary Philbin's gown was gold. Uh, you know, it was, it was very odd that way. UCLA later did a copy of it, and their copy is fairly attractive, but again, um, it, it goes toward that warm look. I've handled that print in hand, and it really is a mess. It's, it's dark as, the, as can be, very dense, very heavy. And when one lab was redoing it in the 90s for a commercial customer, they actually back-timed it. And this is a lab that knew two-color, ten-color. They experimentally back-timed it to push out a lot of that false yellow. And what they wound up with was very interesting. And having been to the, uh, to the Opera in Paris and seen the decor in person, I can see what was under camera in that cleaned up, backed out version with no yellow. The bronze sculptures, the, the rose-colored marble, the gray steps. And as it turns out, uh, her dress is rose, not gold. And, uh, and, and Raoul, of course, now has his black, his black robe, not a, not a magenta violet robe. So, um, which is correct. You know, uh, I, I do think that that version, which is what you do see on the on the photo play edition, um, is probably closer to what was under camera. And it's early enough that, you know, they weren't striving for bizarre effects. It's all they could do to get exposure. Yeah. Nobody was being really tricky trying to say, oh, I want her dress to be this color. and We'll, we'll do it with lighting and printing. No. They just they were just delighted that they'd get those sun arcs to get enough fill light in there to get an exposure. And then the, the double cemented prints held up. Yeah. The double cemented prints particularly were prone to scratching, and so those were heavily varnished. So that varnish then does become part of a look of what people remember from it. Um so you know, which version do you like? Which one do you want? And I think I've tried I've tried to send wax down the most pleasing and attractive road that is certainly most faithful to the intent of what colors were placed before the camera and how they were rendered by the process. You know, you, you can see that with Fay Ray in the last reels with Fay Ray's oatmeal dress where, where she's going through, she's got pools of white light she walks into, but the light behind her, uh, Renahan's using the projected blue-green light. Or then later on in Lionel's uh, workroom, he throws the red-orange light across the electrical panels, still keeping her in a, in a foreground pool of white light. So, um, and a lot of that gets lost in the, in the other versions. So I really was trying to honor what the film was telling me about its nature and balancing that against my knowledge of the process and, and years of watching, you know, to color, tie to color. So is Dr. X next, or is that a whole different Dr. situation? Dr. X is already on the table halfway through. It would have been done weeks ago, but for COVID-19. And um, that, that print is actually even more beat up and worn than the Wax Museum print. But uh, 
it's going to come along nicely. Again, it's we're seeing much richer and more varieties of color in that than the analog preservation that was done back in the 80s, which is, uh, again, with simple lab duping and getting to a viewing print going one generation to a negative, one generation to a print, you've picked up a lot of grain and you've lost some of the color. Uh, being able to scan at 4K, that original nitrate, you're able to, again, read into the film much deeper. And uh, I'm amazed, like during the, um, the reenactment of the murder, uh, the actual blood red of the fluid in Lionel's blood reaction tubes. I mean, it, it's quite something. No, it's, it's funny, something you can see now in the Wax Museum, which I didn't even notice when I proofed it. Um, but in the scene with the morgue attendants are putting Joan Gale's body into the morgue and the one corpse rises from uh, you know, the, the air and they pop it back down. One of the attendants, his, his pale green smock has blood stains on it. They're very faint but they're clearly the color of dried blood. I have never seen that in any of the other uh, renditions of the film. They aren't even apparent in the nitrate, again, because the nitrate with light behind it on the screen plays too darkly, you know, too, too densely for that. But there it is. So obviously they thought it through. They, they propped the wardrobe to give it blood stains. They meant you to see that. Um, Ray Renahan went to town on this one. I mean, you know, he did a long interview uh, with Richard Kazarski, as well as one with Charles Hyam, where he talked about uh, uh, just going wild with what he called projected color, filtered colors in Wax Museum, and all that he could do with them. And um, they're coming back with a subtlety uh, and, and a variety that you've never seen before. The new restoration of Mystery of the Wax Museum comes out Tuesday, May 12th from Warner Archive. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Master. Now what is it, Chula? Why do you disturb me? The girl, she is here. Since when does she have to be announced? She has two men with her. White men. White men? Who are they? I not know, Master. Come on, Doogie, let's go. The doctor's probably busy, and besides, I forgot something at the hut. What? I forgot to stay here. I'm getting out of here. Relax, Cuckoo. You want to get off this island, don't you? Sure I want to get off the island. Well, the doctor's going to help us get off, isn't he? Yes. Dr. Zabe was a very brilliant man. Brilliant man, huh? Anybody who live in a creep joint like this must be a moronic idiot. Good morning. I'm Dr. Zabor. Welcome to my creep joint. As I'm sure you know, that's a clip from Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, starring Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo, directed by William Bodine. There are many directors in old Hollywood who are little more than a name. Who really knows anything about Roy Del Ruth or H.C. Potter or Eddie Sutherland? By that standard, William Bodine is ahead of the game. The only problem is, 
what you know about him is probably wrong, and maybe even slanderous. Nitrateville member Jim Nybar, last here to talk about W.C. Field's silence, tries to set the record straight on a Hollywood professional who had a long, and even at times distinguished, career. In his new book, directed by William Bodine, an overview from Bear Manor Media. I spoke with him at his home in Racine, Wisconsin. You know, it, it, it's just so frustrating that he gets called one shot when that was just so inaccurate. A couple of guys write a snarky book in the 70s and suddenly it, it completely defines his career. <laughs> How did they single him out to pick on as, you know, as the epitome of, of bad B-movie filmmaking? Because there's there's any number of people who much like him were simply turning out solid, efficient filmmaking and nobody picks on Joseph Pevney or somebody. So, <laughs> well, it's probably because, um, Bodine, uh, came to the point where he took pretty much just about any job because he thrived on being active and working. And he looked at everything as like a creative challenge. So when you're, uh, most, noted films are unfortunately Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, Billy the Kid meets Dracula, and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Even without seeing those movies, you can kind of tell they're exploitative and cheap shots, baby, uh, basically. Uh, But uh, uh, Bodine, you know, saw those as a challenge, as something he could do something with, and that they they outrageously lived on. Um, What (laughs) a lot of people don't bother to investigate is where the guy came from. He didn't just show up doing these movies. I mean, they'll go back as far as like, you know, the fact that he did the Bowery boys films and uh, they don't go all the way back to the silent era when uh, he did some really significant stuff. And uh, also during the early talkie era, and a few of them know the WC fields movie he did and they dismiss that as something of a fluke. And that he is better defined by the grade Z movies he did way later in life. And it's just not, you know, it's not accurate and it's not fair. So why did you get so interested in him? You know, when I was a kid discovering uh, older movies, you know, and this is like late 60s, maybe early 70s. Um, I, I used to watch, you know, I, I used to look for the B movies because it wasn't real hard to find Casablanca or uh, any of these big <laughs> classics that were on all the stations um you're out of chicago you probably remember when wgn used to show when movies were movies every (laughs) sunday night and uh they used to have all the warner brothers and mgm stuff there and then on other stations you'd find the paramount stuff so you saw the classics that everybody knew about so i would seek out these uh bypass and uh look for a lot of b movies not just the b westerns that were all over the place but uh you know different, you know, more offbeat things. And that's when I saw, you know, uh, uh, different uh, directors that, you know, the Gene Yarborough type of directors that did that sort of thing. And uh, it seemed like William Bodine's name would pop up a lot. And so friends of mine and I would kind of joke about it, uh, another William Bodine movie. And um, I always thought of him as uh, a, a very um, productive and efficient director. And then suddenly when a book came out um, dismissing him as the worst director in all of film and, you know, referring to him as one shot as if he, you know, kind of skeptically hurried through his movies because 
that's all. He was just a hack and that's the best job he could get. He just kind of took one shot and didn't care and moved on. Well, that was, you know, that didn't really define the movies I had seen, even the B movies I had seen. And so, uh, I kind of explored it just for my own self, basically. And I got into writing books over the years and the time finally came where I thought to myself, you know, maybe it's time to uh, do an overview of uh, William Bodine's career. And uh, so I did. Well, it's certainly true that he worked quickly, he made a lot of movies because he made them in eight or nine days, uh, including it, yeah. uh, at PRC around the same time that uh, Edgar Ulmer was there. So, you know, it's yeah. it's not completely uh, illogical to regard him as something someone who worked quickly and and at best efficiently but i think it, it, i agree it sells short the professionalism of you know just getting a movie made with a certain amount of you know narrative coherence and the the editor doesn't have to send somebody back to shoot all the things you didn't pick up and all that kind of stuff you know they're they're like you know he knew what he was doing in that regard the guys who were like 10 or 15 years younger than him all went into TV as soon as it came along because that was like making B movies. Uh, and you know, and some of, I mean, Joseph H. Lewis is one who, who much preferred TV to making movies. TV's TV gave er, uh-huh. movies, gave him a heart attack at one point and he found TV relaxing <laughs> after that. Right. Uh, well, he first started directing. He was just sort of a, like an errand boy when he was basically just a kid. And, uh, so, he saw like Griffith and Senate as they were first starting to develop the syntax of cinema, as it were. Uh, and then he got a job at Caleb, uh, when he was like a 21 years old or so and, uh, started directing the ham and bud movies, you know, Lloyd Hamilton and bud Duncan, these quickie one reelers. And so he first learned how to direct with these crazy knockabout comedies that, we're done in a few days. And uh, he started learning the rudiments of filmmaking in its most basic manner and also how to be efficient because there was just so much time that was allotted. And uh, I know the Hammond Bud comedies are uh, kind of casually dismissed even by uh, silent comedy historians often, but uh, there's sort of a cheap, aggressive beauty to those films <laughs> that uh, I always found a, a lot of fun and, uh, you know, sometimes really exciting, but that's where Bodine first cut his teeth as it were. And so, uh, then he moved on, you know, it, uh, you know, after starting out at biograph as just an errand boy and then moving on to Kalen, then he was over at uh, universal, um, where he was uh, doing the Joker comedies with, uh, Billy Franey and Dale Henry and Milburn Morante and people like that, the unfortunate ill-fated, uh, Lillian Peacock and, uh, people like that. And, uh, the Joker comedies were very, very successful. And see, he learned, you know, all these foundational things doing these short films. And so he learned efficiently right away. In the silent period, I mean, he had a certain amount of prestige and best known for doing Little Annie Rooney and Sparrows with Mary Pickford. Um, Yeah. First one went well. The second one did not end well for the two of them. Um, but yeah, talk about his, his silent, you know, silent feature career then. Well, he started to, uh, uh, work his way up basically, you know, through the ranks of, uh, the, uh, comedies and the first feature he was, uh, 
a- able to do was um, uh, watch your step, uh, a Goldwyn uh, production. Now, unfortunately, we don't have uh, access to that. And uh, that, you know, that there's a lot of research that I uh, discovered information about uh, his approach to doing a longer film and uh, different uh, ideas he had as a director that uh, pretty much belied the whole one shot rap directed a Lloyd Hamilton feature called uh, a self-made failure, which is unfortunately lost. And that's Hamilton as a solo comic and a feature film. And even though it wasn't successful, um, that there was just something about Hamilton's uh, character not extending well in feature films. And that's all discussed in the book too. But uh, the, um, his, uh, background and and his experience impressed Mary Pickford and she personally asked for him to uh, direct uh, little Annie Rooney because she started to do a couple of films as an adult, you know, in adult roles after being uh, America's sweetheart, as it were. And um, they weren't real uh, successful. Uh, Rosita, I think was one and uh, uh, Dorothy Verdon of Haddon Hall was the other you know, they, they cost a lot of money to make and the public just didn't accept her. And so she went back to the adolescent girlhood type character for little Annie Rooney and Bodine directed that it was a very successful production and Pickford was very happy with them. And, uh, she wanted to make a movie again, right away. Uh, that's how he ended up directing Sparrows, but for Sparrows, Pickford started to second guess a lot of his ideas and had her own perspective where he had his, and there was a lot of clashing and uh, it got so stressful. Uh, you were just talking about, you know, a heart attack and making movies. Um, <laughs> Bodine, Bodine got uh, uh, half of his face uh, got paralyzed, you know, like a Bell's palsy sort of thing. It was temporary. It, it was a stress related thing. And it went away after he left the production and the assistant director took over uh, the last uh, few weeks of shooting, maybe a few days of shooting. But uh, that's how stressful it got for him when he was doing Sparrows. And as it turns out, Sparrows is one of Pickford's best and one of Bodine's best. In the early sound period, um, he had a number of successes. You even say that at one point he was kicking around the idea of writing a textbook of how to use sound. Yeah, yeah. He uh, intri- uh, started to uh, look look into, you know, because he, you know, sound production was coming up and uh, he had to adapt like uh, most other filmmakers had to. And uh, he was actually uh, fairly successful at uh, adapting or evolving to uh, sound movies. And uh, he was considering uh, doing a textbook on filmmaking because in the early sound period, he was a director who not only transitioned well, but he had been around since like the turn of the century uh, of filmmaking. And so uh, he really saw a lot of growth in uh, being a filmmaker and uh so he had the knowledge and he was uh considering he toyed with the idea basically um to help uh filmmakers who were having trouble with the new uh idea of sound film production and uh, he started to compile uh some material like some notes and i don't know what happened to those notes if the family has them or what but uh he felt that um it might save money if the directors had some basic knowledge ahead of time on how to work with this new medium. His probably most famous uh, pre-code sound film would be uh, The Old Fashioned Way with the Lee Fields. The one that really interests me, though, um, it's very little known, but to me it's one of the strongest films of the early 30s. 
uh, is a drama called The Mad Parade, which I guess was kind of made independently by something called Liberty Productions, but released through Paramount. Right, yeah. And it's an all-female... The all-female war picture. And they're nurses, and it's very much one of those stories about everybody being on their last nerve in a... Uh, you know, in a, in a difficult uh, wartime situation. Uh, but yeah, like the women, there's there's no men in it. And there's some fairly shocking violence between the women themselves. Uh, originally, that was going to be directed. It was going to be a you know full-fledged uh, women's picture and be directed by Dorothy Arzner. And uh, the stars were originally going to be uh, Ruth Chatterton, um, Faye Ray, and Jean Arthur. And uh, I believe there's some footage that was shot and still exists. Yes, I'm it's not in, real sure. No, it's in the house that Shadows oh. built, the documentary that Paramount okay. did for its anniversary. But it's pretty clearly, okay. Okay. I think they never went into production and they just kind of quickly filmed something for that documentary because it doesn't feel like a real film, <laughs> you know, in, intangibly. Okay, just doesn't yeah. quite have it, but... Uh, Chatterton left the production and it ended up uh, being, you know, <laughs> stuck on the back burner somewhere. And when the studio, uh, w- when it was resurrected for uh, William Bodine, um, a new cast was hired. And uh, so that's a, that's why you have uh, Irene Rich and Evelyn Brent and Louise Cizenda, Marceline Day, um, Lillian Tashman. And uh, it, it, it's um, the horrors of war. And the women who are, you know, the nurses who are having to deal with that from that perspective and perspective and uh, and Paramount did buy the right to distribute it, uh, except they cut it a lot. They, you know, edited and uh, there wasn't a lot that remained of Bodine's original concept. And uh, it flopped at the box office and uh, it was dismissed by the critics. So uh, I think it holds up better now. Uh, because uh, the perspective it presents during yeah, that time. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty hard-bitten thing. All right, so then he yeah. made what turns out in retrospect to be a mistake for his career, which is he went to England to direct some comedy films over there uh, with the kind of people that we hear about but never get to see in America, like Will Hay and Max Miller and George Formby. Oh, <clears throat> the backbone. Now, how would you define the backbone, Willie? The backbone is a lot of little knobs, one on top of the other. Your head sits on one end, and um, you sit on the other. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's uh, quite true, but very badly expressed. You should have said, your head sits on the top, and you sit on the... Bottom. Bottom, yes. That'll do, that'll do, that'll do. These are people I had read about but didn't know a great deal about their work. And Will Hay was especially intriguing because he was such a big star at the time in England. And I've read where he was called uh, England's answer to W.C. Fields. And having seen his films now, I don't know how terribly accurate that is. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I can understand where um, Bo Dean's just had a big hit with the old-fashioned way. And so when... Uh, he was summoned to England to work with Will Hay. He liked the experience. He liked England, and he kept getting good jobs there. So he stayed there for like uh, four years. But uh, there was some, uh, well, uh, something about they wanted him to pay taxes that he already had paid in America, and 
he felt like he'd be paying double and so forth. It's explained all in my book. It's, you know, probably boring if I recited it here, but uh, it ended up with him uh, leaving England and returning to America. But the American film industry had moved on and passed him by. And it was like he had a star all over again. So he made a whole bunch of movies in like 1932. But when he came back uh, to America, the only job he could get in all of 1938 and then all of 1939 was one film each of those years. And they were both in the uh, Torchy series uh, at the B unit at Warner Brothers. Brian Foy uh, hired him. Yeah, and so then he enters the phase where, I mean, much like Edgar Ulmer, he's, you know, he'll direct anything. He directs you know, Dixie National Productions with Herb Jeffries, films with him. Uh, he's directing a PRC, a little step up to Monogram, yeah. and then we get into the whole. Uh, East Side Kids become the Bowery Boys, and he's, you know, I mean, that really is like series TV at that point. He's directing, you know, an hour Bowery Boys movie, you know, multiple times a year. Well, what's interesting about that is um, when he was doing the East Side Kids, the East Side Kids were a little more serious with comic touches. And uh, then he comes along and he directs something like the Clancy Street Boys, which is pretty much more comedy than uh, drama and that showed that uh, Leo Gorsi, Hunts Hall and so forth uh, had a good comic sensibility where they could play as comedy as well as dramas with a few humorous touches and so they started to explore that a little bit more when Bodine was directing and then when they uh, revamped the series, Jan Grippo uh, revamped the series as the Bowery Boys, the first couple of those were a little more serious oriented. And then Bodine comes along and starts directing stuff that's uh, more comical. And the series started to be more of a comedy series with a dramatic undertone rather than dramatic films with comic touches. Bodine kind of stepped back and let uh, the actors kind of do a little improvisation and come up with some ideas of their own, a little more collaborative. Pretty much uh, the Bowery Boys... Uh, they had a different way of working that connected with Bodine. Hunts Hall, to the end of his days, would look back very fondly at William Bodine as a director and say, you know, he 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 helped guide us. And well, it seems like it's kind of like this situation with Laurel and Hardy, where they were, you know, they they were just told to do follow the script and do what you're told in a lot of their later films. And Bodine was still rooted in that early silent comedy era where he was able to let them, you know, let them run free a bit and still deliver on time. So, yeah, it's also interesting because um, they just released uh, that DVD set of the Hal, uh, the Hal Roach uh, early talkies with Harry Langdon and uh, Harry Langdon's sound film career is uh, sometimes dismissed a little too cavalierly because he continued to do, it wasn't as good as a silent era, but he continued to do some interesting stuff in sound films. And uh, Bodine directed him in what I think is a very amusing feature film called misbehaving husbands in which uh, he kind of stepped back and let Langdon do what he needed to do because he understood his character so well. And by that time, uh, Langdon was uh, pretty established and understanding of how to work in a talking picture too, because it was you know some years uh, after the sure. uh, 
wrote stuff where he first cut his teeth. And he established himself in two reelers from like educational Paramount, Columbia. And so by the time he did Misbehaving Husbands, he was pretty set. He had pretty decent command of sound films. And uh, Bodine gave him the freedom that he really needed to have because he was sort of an offbeat, surreal sort of a comedian that uh, needed that. And I think it came off uh, really well. I think it's one of the better later Harry Langdon uh, performances. Well, and then we come, of course, to the greatest team he worked with, Mitchell and Petrillo, in uh, (laughs) Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Mitchell and Petrillo, you know, have to be seen to be believed. They were basically doing a low-rent imitation of Martin and Lewis, and Petrillo's Lewis is really good. He's shockingly like him. Duke Mitchell, you know, has, has all the charm of, you know, Dean Martin's laundry. He he's just pretty hard to take as as anything that you want to spend time with. But nevertheless, uh he Bodine even managed to make a perfectly okay threadbare movie out of Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. I talked to uh Jerry Lewis about this because uh, uh, Ted Okuda and I did a book on Jerry Lewis's films years of twenty five years ago. And uh so uh when we were at Lewis's house doing interviews, uh, I started asking him about different comedians and his uh, feelings about them. And then I said, I have to ask about Mitchell and Petrillo. And Lewis laughed and shook his head and said, I created my own Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and uh, See, these guys, uh, Martin and Lewis were aware of these guys, but they were just playing small clubs. And so it was like, ah, eh, you know, big deal. And then they find out, wait, they're going to make a movie? And they look at each other and say, we got to stop these guys. <laughs> well, We're going to steal our act. And it turns out to be like a producer's type thing where it was all kind of a sham. Yeah, it really was. Um, old friend of mine, Bill Capello, who you probably knew, um, he talked to Duke Mitchell and Mitchell thinks that the entire idea was to make a movie and sell it back to Paramount for more than its cost and make money that way. and just never released the thing. And so they, threw this threadbare thing together. You know, uh, the script was worked on by Tim Ryan, who had worked on the Bowery Boys movies. They needed somebody efficient, and nobody was better than Bill Bodine. And uh, they put something together. And I have an assistant who works with me uh, on all my books, Katie Carlin, and she watches all the movies. She uh, helps with the research, and she's just terrific. And after she screened Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, for the first time, I mean, Katie's only 30 years old, uh, she sent me uh, a text that says, I don't ever want to see that movie again. <laughs> so some people don't react as open-mindedly as we, you and I do. But to me, I was really impressed at how much Bodine got out of this. Because, yeah. first of all, uh, uh, Duke Mitchell is, you know, you can't, Dean Martin, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> He could he he couldn't sing as good as Dean Kane, and um, <laughs> Sammy Petrillo, uh, he's like all of Jerry Lewis's excesses, but none of the humor that goes with it, and um, so it was just completely outrageous. But Bodine, I mean, it, it cost you know very little to make, and Bodine used the you know dark and light to make it look like. Uh, it, it was, you know, more expensive than it was. And there's a lot of wonderful incongruity, like uh, Lugosi in a, you know, 
white suit walking through the jungle with jungle clad people. And, um, yeah. uh, uh, when, when Petrillo gets away from the, uh, Lewis characterization and just acts like any, you know, low rent B comic, he's really, you know, sort of like Hunts Hall might be. And I found the movie, uh, reasonably amusing. I, in my research, I actually found newspaper ads that claimed it was a Martin and Lewis movie. It was really kind of funny. And <laughs> I can imagine people going to the movie and saying, boy, wait a minute. But Jerry Lewis told me that people would come up to him and tell him that they really liked the movie he and Dean made with Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and Lewis goes, my God, they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> but uh, he said he went to he went to Jack Broder, uh, the producer, and gave him hell. And then Hal Wallace went to Broder and gave him hell. But the movie got made, and uh, Lewis told me, well, claimed to be that uh, he had never seen it. But uh, I have read things where uh, he was invited to a screening. Us, uh, I think Sammy Petrillo uh, mentioned that um, Lewis attended a screening, and when it looks like Petrillo gets shot. Lewis said loudly, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So we could go into similar depth on Billy, the kid versus Dracula, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter, (laughs) but you know, I don't want to lose all the listeners to this podcast. Let's talk about, let's end this on a, on a high note here, which is Bodine was actually fortunate enough, fortunate enough not to read that book that insulted him, but rather to live long enough for the rediscovery of one of his silent films, The Canadian, uh, which was made, I think, in 1927, um, and he saw a screening at the AFI that Kevin Brownlow put on in 1969. Right. Kevin Kevin with uh, David Shepard. And uh, I have to mention that uh, Kevin Brownlow gave me, like, photos and materials to help with this project. And so I acknowledged him, of course, and I dedicated the book to him because he's, you know, kind of taught all of us. But Kevin and uh, David Shepard did uh, had hold a screening of the Canadian in 1969. And they, they were just, you know, blown away by it when they found it. Uh, like, it was like in a collection. It was like donated to them in a group of films. I, I, I believe Paramount, uh, they donated to like the National Film Collection or something like that. I should have had, you know, the manuscript in front of me so I can remember what I said. That They uh, held a screening with Bodine in attendance. And uh, he was pretty frail by that time. He died the next year. But he spoke to the audience and say, saying that uh, he was really like pleased to uh, get the honor of appearing. Then he later uh, phoned Kevin Brownlow the next day and said, you know, that uh, that did a hell of a lot for my ego. So uh, it was a nice way to kind of conclude his life because, uh, you know, TV had been directing in TV and that kind of passed him by by the end of the 60s. And so uh, and he died in 1970. So this was a really nice culmination to his uh, life and his career. Jim Nybar's book, directed by William Bodine, An Overview, is out now from Bear Manor Media. Links are in the show post at nitrateville.com. 
Thanks to my guests, Scott McQueen and Jim Nybar, and to Marisa Soto at UCLA. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Hey, Dookie, come here. I think I know where you know this guy from. Where? Ain't this the fellow that goes around with the hands and the faces, biting people on the neck and wearing capes? They're crazy.